Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. In American politics, there's never been a woman quite like Nancy Pelosi. She's the first woman ever to be majority leader in Congress. As a leader, she's the first woman ever to sit at the table in the White House with congressional leaders from both parties. She's the first woman ever to be Speaker of the House of Representatives. Not only that, she's done it twice. And she drives Donald Trump crazy. As Amy Klobuchar said in one of the presidential debates, quote, if you don't think a woman can beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. And yet, you know, we know very little about Nancy Pelosi, where she comes from, what makes her tick, and what makes her so effective. Until now, that is. In a new biography of Speaker Pelosi called Pelosi, Time Magazine national political reporter Molly Ball captures Nancy Pelosi at her very best. I recently interviewed Molly Ball for a special program at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill. Molly Ball, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start at the end uh, because I was struck uh, in the afterword to the book where you say that about Nancy Pelosi, you don't have to agree with her to respect her accomplishments and appreciate her historic career. So in spending almost two years writing this book, interviewing Nancy Pelosi several times, looking at her career, talking to a lot of her friends and associates, what did you discover to be her strengths and then her weaknesses? Well, a few things about her career that I think can be appreciated by partisans of all stripes. And in fact, I do know some uh, Republicans who do, if not admire her, respect uh her skills. Um, one is just her incredible effectiveness as a legislator. If you talk to, you know, scholars of Congress, they will tell you that probably not since uh, LBJ or Sam Rayburn has there been a legislator who was simply as good at managing the process, getting big pieces of policy through the Congress, being effective in, in leading both their caucus and the House as a whole. Uh, and then the fact that she's the first woman speaker is not something is not something that should be underestimated. It, it was hard for her to get there. She remains the only woman who's ever led a party in the Congress a uh, hundred years after women got the right to vote. Uh, she is the only woman who has been at that table of, of congressional leadership, and uh, and that's a remarkable feat. And she had to really fight to get there. Keep in mind when she got to Congress in 1987. She was one of 23 women mm -hmm. in the 435-member House of Representatives. So uh, she she fought very hard to get where she is. Right. Um, and she did and, it twice. I'm sorry. Yes, right. And did it, it did it twice. 
clearly the most powerful woman ever in American politics. Would you agree? I think it's true just as a matter of her title. I mean, I suppose you could, she's certainly the most powerful politician in elective office. Uh, Mm-hmm. You can quibble with, does a governor have more power at their disposal on a day-to-day basis? Does does the Secretary of State perhaps have more latitude uh, in terms of foreign policy? But in but in elected national political office, uh, there isn't anyone, I think, more powerful than the Speaker of the House. She's second in the line of succession to the presidency. And uh, you can see simply by the, the list of things that she's accomplished that incredible power that she's had to shape the policies that affect all of our lives. And she gets the title from several people, as you mentioned in the book, Master Legislator. Um, Has there ever been a more effective speaker of the House? Well, again, I'm not an expert on congressional history, so I don't know how to, but I certainly have spoken to several people who were around for the past few speakers who are around for the the Gingrich speakership, the Tip O'Neill speakership, even uh, you know some of the speakers of the past century, and she stacks up against them pretty impressively, especially when you consider the changes that have occurred in politics and in Congress during the time she's been there. She was in Congress for that uh, you know Newt Gingrich Republican Revolution in 1994, which is where a lot of uh, scholars today and and experts today trace a lot of the current dysfunction and partisanship and polarization to. So she's come to power in an era where it has been harder and harder uh, for a lot of reasons for Congress to get anything done. And yet she's been able to get a lot of things done. So I first met Nancy Pelosi uh, when we were both active in democratic politics in San Francisco. Uh, She is known, uh, rightfully so, as a San Francisco Democrat. But as you point out, that's not where she started, right? It all began 3,000 miles away from San Francisco. Tell us about that. That's right. She was born and raised in Baltimore, where her father was a member of Congress when she was born. And when she was seven years old, he became the mayor of Baltimore. Uh, She actually swore him in for his first term as mayor, and it's one of her favorite early memories. Uh, and wrote the speech that he gave with help uh, from the nuns at her Catholic school. So, you know, she was very much shaped by that world of old school, uh, white, ethnic, democratic, urban machine politics. That was the tradition that her father was a part of. And I think it's kind of a, a, a handy metaphor for not just her career, but the transformation of the Democratic Party that has gone from being the product of some of these sort of old school urban machines to the sort of coastal urban liberal party uh, that she sort of represents today and is a part of today. And she is a very interesting combination of those two profiles, those two skill sets. On the one hand, she knows how to count votes. Uh, She knows how to organize and work the levers of power the way uh, her father did back in the old days. On the other hand, she's very much uh, representative of her district and a lot of the the causes that she's advocated and the things that she's worked on throughout her career and and certainly in the way that she has been, uh, some would say, caricatured by the right as this sort of avatar of the the far left and, and as you said, the, the San Francisco Democrats. Well, so I know a lot about her father, member of Congress and mayor, about her brother who was mayor. Uh, I didn't know until I read your book how important a force 
her mother, Annunziata, was uh, in Nancy's uh, political, let's say, education. And, and she, her mother, was really very much a part of the political machinery in Baltimore. That's right. And I really did want to sort of recenter uh, her mother in this narrative because uh, when Nancy Pelosi talks about her, she talks about her as a partner in her father's political enterprise. But I think, you know, for obvious reasons, not having had those titles in front of her name and the fact that Nancy Pelosi went into the family business, it's been natural for people to associate her with her father's tradition. But her mother was was very important in her life. Her mother uh, was sort of the, the brains of the political operation in a lot of ways, running the Baltimore Women's Democratic Club out of the basement of their row house in Little Italy, which was so crucial to getting out the vote in order to get her father elected. Uh, she also ran the so-called favor file, which was the sort of constituent services operation that was run out of the family parlor on the first floor, uh, which meant, you know, helping get people on welfare, helping get people into housing or into the hospital, and and then knowing how to cash in those chits when when the time came. Uh, So, and the other thing that I think is significant, you know, there's her her mother has been described as a very strong-willed, even aggressive person, someone who was never afraid to to, to get up in anybody's face. There's a story that she once even punched a poll worker who uh, displeased her. Uh, so she was no shrinking violet. And I think you can certainly see that in her daughter, her only daughter out of, out of six surviving children. Uh, but the other thing about her mother that I think really influenced Nancy Pelosi's worldview is the way that she was stifled, the way that she was not allowed to achieve her goals and dreams because she was a woman at the time. Uh, her mother wanted to be an auctioneer, wanted to go to law school, wanted to start her own business, even invented and patented a beauty device. Uh, But in those days, you needed a man's signature to do something like that. And her husband, uh, Nancy Pelosi's father, would not allow her to. So I think in, in a lot of ways, Nancy Pelosi, at least earlier in her life, saw herself as sort of fulfilling the dreams that her mother was not allowed to, whether it was leaving home and, and going to college in a different city, uh, or, you know, eventually climbing the political ladder and, and, and having her own title in front of her name instead of just being a missus. And you point out that uh, young Nancy D'Alessandro um, wasn't just um, around the house. I mean, she herself, right, uh, participated in the political uh, machinery that was going on in the house. Uh, and she must have learned a lot of lessons there in Baltimore that still are, are that she's kind of applying in her role as Speaker of the House. I think that's certainly true when you look at uh, a lot of the the skills that she brings to the process. At the same time, I don't want to overestimate it. And I think uh, she and people around her sometimes feel like uh, whenever a woman achieves power and prominence, there's an attempt to find the the men who taught her how to do it in a way that there isn't always with a male political figure. We'd always go rooting around in their past to find, you know, who was the man who 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 gave him these skills. So I'm certainly not accusing you of anything, but yeah. I do, but I do think, you know, when you think about leaving home at the age of 17 or 18, the things that you learn from your parents are really important. Uh, but they're not everything in life. And uh, she did a lot herself to establish herself in, in politics and to learn things on her own. 
Yeah, a couple of things. That what I was really thinking about were, one, ability to count votes, which Nancy can count votes better than I think anybody else alive today, maybe. And also remembering people and and um, giving people credit. And I'm sure that's something she, she learned from her mother, too, right? And I, whenever I see Nancy in front of any group where there's any member of Congress, she goes out of her way to recognize each of those members of Congress and to say something good about each one of them. That's right. And that's not necessarily something that a lot of politicians are good at, right? Politicians right. Uh, are, are really into their own power and their own ego. They're not always so good at sharing credit. Uh, but she has always realized that the key to her own power, particularly in the House, right, where you have to have the votes and the support of your caucus, is making your your constituents basically feel uh, represented. I think it also goes back to her effectiveness as a young mother. Uh, she had five children in six years after getting married right out of college. And she was, by all accounts, a, a, a tough but uh, very effective leader of the family. And uh, I think when you are trying to get children to do what you want them to do, whether it's clean their rooms or fold the laundry or just put their shoes on and go outside, uh, you can't have your ego caught up in it, right? You've got to always be giving positive reinforcement in order to kind of get people all on the same page and marching in the same direction. Right. And she certainly knows how to do that. So she moved, as you point out, she moves to San Francisco with her husband, Paul, um, banker, investor, um, venture capitalist. And Nancy gets involved in politics, but she didn't decide to run for office. It sort of came to her getting involved um, in politics. Uh, tell us how that happened. Well, she has always described herself as a sort of accidental politician, someone who never saw herself uh, seeking political office herself. She she saw herself as a strategist, someone who might operate behind the scenes, uh, a fundraiser, a party operative, uh, as you well know. But before she ever ended up running for office, uh, she was uh, well known as, as a fundraiser mm -hmm. on the national circuit as well as the California circuit and also was a top party player who was chair of the California Democratic Party, the largest Democratic Party in the country, uh, made a failed bid for chair of the DNC, helped bring the 1984 Democratic Convention to San Francisco. She so she was already a player, uh, but she always said she never wanted to be an elected office herself. And in fact, over, those, over the years that she was doing those things, many people asked her to run for office, uh, and she always said no. Uh, it wasn't until in 1987, her good friend, Sala Burton, the widow of the former congressman, Phil Burton, was dying of cancer and called her to her bedside uh, and, uh, and, and implored her to run for the seat in Congress after she passed away. And so having made that dramatic deathbed promise to her close friend, uh, Nancy Pelosi felt, felt duty bound to follow through and, and uh, I think one thing that I have learned observing Nancy Pelosi is she doesn't do anything halfway. She wasn't going to just take a stab at it and maybe it would work out and maybe it wouldn't. Uh, she put her whole self into it and, and it was a tough campaign, but it's the only tough campaign she's really had in her life. Ever since then, she's had a, a pretty firm grip on a safe seat in Congress. And it was at that time, there are two, uh, two or three adjectives about Nancy I wanted to ask you about, but Phil Burton 
who was Salah's husband, a longtime congressman from San Francisco, um, said about Nancy, she was operational, operational, which to him was the greatest compliment you could make of a politician. What, what's he mean by that? And how do you see Nancy as operational? Yeah, I, I argue in the book that this is the single best word you can use to describe Nancy Pelosi. And it is a great compliment coming from Phil Burton, because what he meant was someone who cares about getting results more than anything else. Gets things done. Someone who gets things done and someone who works, who knows how to work the system to get things done. Someone whose first priority is not whether people like them or, or how they look in the press or anything like that, but are they achieving their political and policy goals? Are they uh, improving people's lives through the policy process? And that was something that he saw in Nancy Pelosi. Right. And um, for, for example, would there be an Affordable Care Act today without Nancy Pelosi? I think it's quite likely that there would not. I think uh, her skill at getting that legislation through the House uh, was crucial to the effort. Not only that, but you know, there was a, a moment when the Obama White House was tempted to back away when it looked like the effort had failed. When you know they'd gotten one bill through the House and another bill through the Senate, and then the Democrats lost their 60th Senate vote with the uh, defeat of the Democratic candidate in the Massachusetts Senate election. And you had a lot of uh, Barack Obama's political advisors, such as then Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel, saying, this is too heavy a lift. It can't be done. Uh, it's unpopular. The public is sick of it. Let's just do something smaller and move on. And it was really Nancy Pelosi who, uh, who said, look, this is something Democrats and Democratic presidents have been trying to achieve for the better part of a century. We have, uh, the, we have the potential here to do something truly historic we can't stop now. And so she actually, you know, she turned to President Obama in a meeting in the Oval Office and she said, Mr. President, I know some people are urging you to take what she called the namby-pamby approach, uh, <laughs> but, but I don't think we should, we should stop now. And, and he agreed with her. And I think that was a big reason. And, you know, she had to, she had to give a pep talk of, of similar proportions to her own caucus because it had been so hard to get the legislation through the House in the first place, and then to have to go back to them and say, actually, we're going to have to pass a bill you like even less, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, was was a really Herculean feat, and it speaks to you know the uh, the the credibility she built up with her colleagues that they were willing to follow her down that path. Today's podcast with Molly Ball brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, the good men and women of the Iron Workers under President Eric Dean. They say the sky is the limit for them, and they mean it. Look at the iconic buildings uh, that the Iron Workers have uh, provided us uh, and structures the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the St. Louis Arch, One World Trade Center, the Smithsonian National Museum of American. African-American history and culture here in Washington. All the good work of the Ironworkers. Check out their website at ironworkers.org. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. 
inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So operational, that's one word. The other word I hear a lot with regards to Nancy Pelosi is underestimated. And I think, as I see, she's been underestimated, and from your book, too, from the very beginning when she arrived in Congress, and then she became whip, and she became majority leader. And you tell a story about how Tom DeLay learned himself the hard way not to underestimate Nancy Pelosi. Yes, this is when she had just become the minority leader. Uh, so the leader of the Democratic minority in Congress and Tom DeLay was the majority leader and the speaker at the time was was Denny Hastert. And uh, they were apportioning the new committees and she had received a promise in writing from the speaker uh, that the committees would would stay the same size. And she had just finished appointing the Democrats to the important committees and only to get a, a call from Tom DeLay saying, hey, actually, we think we're going to reduce the size of this committee. It shouldn't be a problem, right? And and uh, she said, no, it is a problem. I have a promise right here from the speaker. And he's sort of wheedling her and trying to talk her into it. And she stops him and she says, life on this planet as you know it will not be the same if you persist in this notion. (laughs) And it's such a classic Nancy Pelosi utterance. I think probably many members of, of her caucus and the opposing caucus have heard versions of it over the years. Um, And it's really, you know, it really speaks to her toughness, her steeliness, her unwillingness to back down. And I think a lot of other leaders might have been able, might have, you know, let something go over a handshake or, you know, the proverbial cigar in the smoke filled room. And she's never been that kind of leader. She's, she's, she's very tough. And, 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 you know, she's been underestimated throughout her career, partly, because she's a woman and people weren't sure whether to take her seriously as this sort of rich fundraiser from San Francisco. But I think it also ties into that fact of being operational. The fact that she was always more focused on results than on appearance meant that 
people who meant that it was easy for people to underestimate her because they often didn't see how much effort she was putting in behind the scenes or how much of a particular uh, successful piece of legislation had to do with her as opposed to all those other people up on the dais that she insisted on giving credit to. Right. And in fact, in that case, it was a Tom DeLay who backed down. Uh, and Tom DeLay learned never to underestimate Nancy Pelosi again. And and I guess the third word is, and I don't know whether I would say determined or to use Mitch McConnell's word, persistent. But there have been so many occasions, as you point out, where the Democrats, she's speaker, they lose the House. Hillary Clinton is going to be elected. She loses in times in between when there was so much pressure on her to get out of the way, even a rebellion inside of her own caucus. And so many opportunities where people thought Nancy was, would just fold and quit and walk away. And she never did. She hung in there and now she's speaker again. What keeps her going? Well, she would say uh, her, her answer to this question is always the children, the children, the children. She always says that that is her why for being in politics is improving the lives of America's children and children around the world. Now that's kind of corny and obviously people have other motivations. Um, and, and it's some combination of, you know, that toughness, that stubbornness, that unwillingness to let anybody else decide her fate for her. She's going to decide herself. Thank you very much. Uh, and not wanting to sort of give her opponents the satisfaction of being able to drive her out of the game. Uh, a former aide to her once uh, once said everything she does is rooted in this combination of obligation and confidence, right? This feeling that somebody has to do this and I am the one who can do it. So pretty much everything she does. So I think she looked at the House, say, after the Democrats lost it in 2010, and the prospect of going from Speaker of the House to Minority Leader is a very unpleasant one. And most people assumed that uh, that she would take the opportunity to enjoy a nice retirement. But I think she looked at the situation and said, well, somebody has to lead the Democrats in the minority. And, and I'm the only one who can do it. The other people who are, who are available to do it are not going to do the job the way I think it ought to be done. And, uh, and, and so year after year, she's also, she's very tenacious. She's very patient. And so even as, you know, that frustration and angst within the Democratic caucus has grown, in part because she and her, her two lieutenants have, have been in charge of the House Democrats for more than 15 years now. Uh, she doesn't step aside because she, I think, doesn't see someone else that she feels can do the job. Right. And, and also I've heard her say, and you point out in the book too, that if she were to walk away, there would be no woman at the table. Yeah. And I think that's really important to her. You know, uh, the fact that she is the only woman ever to lead a party in the Congress means that when the president meets with the top congressional leaders, she is the only woman in the room and she has been throughout her career. And it's been remarked upon in some of those photos of, you know, her standing up to Trump in the White House. But that's not a new feeling for her. It's basically been her whole career. She, after the 26th election, she told me and a few others that uh, she would have considered stepping aside if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency because there would be a woman at the table. Uh, now, who know, nobody heard her say that before the election. So who knows if she really did have that intention. Uh, but I do think it is important to her that women's voices be represented. And she takes seriously the fact that uh, if she weren't there, it would be a room full of men. Right. So in 2018, when uh, Democrats in charge and there's suddenly this whole new burst of energy and the 
uh, in terms of these younger members being elected to Congress, um, a diff- total different generation than Nancy Pelosi, a lot farther to the left, maybe, that at least publicly, than Nancy Pelosi, uh, the squad and AOC and all the names that we know. Um, how did Nancy deal with them? Well, her, her public posture is she loves seeing young progressive women in Congress. And she has done a lot to increase the number of women in Congress, which, you know, having been 23 when she got there is now over 100 for the first time in history. And, uh, and, and she's been a big part of, you know, recruiting and encouraging women to run. And as you sort of alluded to, I think she would quibble with your pre- premise that the energy is primarily on the left, because the reason Democrats have the majority in the House is primarily because of you know, more moderate members who are able to win swing districts and take seats away from Republicans rather than, you know, win a primary for a safe Democratic seat the way Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did. Uh, But it it very much is of a piece with her MO that, you know, the day after Joe Crowley, one of her uh, friends and and loyal lieutenants, uh, lost his primary to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, one minute she was on the phone commiserating with Joe Crowley. A few hours later, she was on the phone welcoming Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and saying, I, you know, I, I, I love seeing new progressive women in Congress. Uh, thank you for having the courage to, to get into the arena and let's see what we can do together. So, you know, there have been some high profile clashes between her and that left flank of the party. But I think it's important to remember that not only do, do they not necessarily represent the sort of part of the Democratic caucus uh, they don't even necessarily represent the progressive part of the caucus because uh, you know the, she, the 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 congressional progressive caucus is much bigger than those four members that I think Nancy Pelosi regards as a sort of a relative fringe. Right, Molly Ball, a national political correspondent with Time Magazine for Time Magazine and CNN contributor, is the author of the great new book Pelosi. You'll see a copy of it right there in back of uh, Molly with. Nancy Pelosi with the red coat stepping out of the White House, Molly, after um, maybe <laughs> one of Donald Trump's most awkward moments, right? That uh, he, he, he sort of downplayed her importance and she let him have it. Tell us that story. Yeah, it, it really tells you everything you need to know about sort of the relationship between the two of them and what she has come to signify in our current political moment. I think uh, a lot of people remember that code and remember that moment because this is December 2018, uh, shortly after those midterms have uh, elevated Democrats to the majority in the House, but before uh, Nancy Pelosi has managed to secure enough votes to guarantee that she will return to the speakership. So she's in the middle of this tough battle inside the caucus uh, with a lot of uh, de- a few determined uh, opponents who would like to see a different, fresh face atop the Democratic Party. And meanwhile, uh, she is trying to negotiate to keep the government open. And so she and her Senate counterpart, Chuck Schumer, go into the White House to negotiate with Trump. And uh, rather than a closed door negotiation that they were expecting, Trump invites the cameras to stay in the room. And then uh, in the course of this conversation about whether there should be a border wall and so on, uh, Trump says, well, Nancy can't really talk right now. She's got a tough situation with her own people. And she stops him. She interrupts him. She's never been afraid to to interrupt a a man who was talking over her and said, Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. So that was her laying down a marker and saying, you know, 
American people have vested me with this authority and you're not going to tell me how much power I have. Uh, and then, and so that was one moment that was really resonant, just that quote, her saying that. And then, you know, getting up, walking out of the White House, putting on that red coat and those tortoiseshell, tortoiseshell sunglasses and smiling that little sort of self-satisfied smile. Uh, for a lot of people on the left, especially, it was the first time they'd seen anyone stand up to Trump in that way. And so it was sort of symbolic of the whole political current that swept the Democrats into the House majority, that people could finally see a countervailing force in the national government to stand up to Trump and say, you don't get everything you want. You have to deal with us now. Uh, and then just the image of, you know, being a woman standing up to a man in that way, I think resonated with a lot of people as well. And it really, uh, I didn't design the cover. Uh, I love the cover of my book. I think it's beautiful, but it also speaks to the way that her image has turned around in this moment as so many people have come to appreciate uh, what she stands for. Right. And we've seen several moments since the famous clap during the uh, State of the Union. Well done. You look just like <laughs> <laughs> the Union Address, the time when she's walked out of a meeting in the cabinet room and said, all roads with you lead to Putin, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And, uh, and also when she ripped up his speech after the last State of the Union, more than anybody else, she has a way of getting under Donald Trump's skin, doesn't she? She really does. And, and, and many of uh, his people have also said that, that he seems a little bit afraid of her in the way that he doesn't uh, a lot of other politicians in, in, in either party. She just seems to have his number. And it goes back to the very beginning, uh, shortly after the inauguration, when all of the congressional leaders went to the White House for the first time. And uh, they're all sort of politely mingling. And, and Trump uh, is going on about how, you know, he, he says, you know, I really won the popular vote. And uh, everyone else sort of smiled and nodded, even though they knew it wasn't true. And it was Nancy Pelosi who, who spoke up to say, Mr. President, that isn't true. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that she has always been willing to interrupt, stand up to him, tell him that he's not telling the truth to his face uh, has always he, he's always had a little bit of grudging respect for for her strength, for her toughness. Right. And you end the book when Nancy Pelosi uh, holds a news conference to announce that the House is going to begin the impeachment of Donald Trump. Is that the, do you see, do you end there because that's the peak of her career, the, the greatest, her greatest accomplishment? Way to spoil the ending, Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I ended it there, honestly, partly for logistical reasons, uh -huh. uh, because I was trying to, I was on a book deadline and, and she's still in office and events are, you know, continuing to happen even as I'm trying to write the book. Uh, but I actually think it was a very a fitting moment, not because it's the capstone to her career and will be her legacy. She believes, and I think she's probably right, that the Affordable Care Act will be remembered uh, much more than, than the impeachment of Donald Trump as a sort of landmark in American legislative history. Uh, but at the same time, it does, I did think it was a fitting moment to, to juxtapose the things that she stands for you know, the, the, the institutionalist, the, uh, the, 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 you know, she's giving this speech about the founders and the constitution and the bedrock of democracy and the juxtaposition of that to the sort of chaos represented by Trump. Uh, it's, it really is the sort of ultimate confrontation between the political forces that are shaping the present moment. And it's a, it's a, it's the sort of climactic, 
uh, moment in that regard. So I did think it was it was a fitting way to end it, I, even though I kind of had to end it there anyway. <laughs> and finally, what did Nancy Pelosi tell you about how long she's going to be in office? She does not talk about that, and uh, she gets annoyed if you mention it. <laughs> uh, but I do reveal in the book that, uh, you know, in order to regain the speakership after 2018, she, she had to negotiate with all these different factions in the caucus. And one of the concessions that she made uh, was a term limit, was to, she agreed that, to, she agreed that she would stay on no long, not past 2022. Uh, and then she went into her next meeting laughing because she said, well, I was only planning to stay one term anyway. <laughs> so, uh, and this is a signature negotiating tactic of hers, the, the fake concession. I, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot about how to negotiate with my young children uh, from watching her. And so one of those tactics is to pretend you're giving up something that really matters to you when actually it doesn't mean anything to you at all, or you'd already given it up uh, in your mind. Um, but I don't know if that's still her plan. And, and it's been very interesting to see after that hard fought battle to regain the speakership. Uh, she's really brought a around a lot of her former detractors, especially a lot of the moderates in the house who worried that, you know, she made them look too liberal. It's it's a lot of those members who now are grateful for her leadership and the way that she's kept the caucus, uh, in their view, you know, focused on the mainstream instead of spinning off uh, into left-wing world. Molly Ball, thanks you so much for spending so much time with us today. Uh, again, I know Nancy well. I've known her a long time. Uh, and yet uh, there was so much in the book that I didn't know. Uh, and I thought you really captured her, her spirit and her energy, which is indefatigable, uh, and her determination, the things that we talked about. Excellent job. Thank you so much. And uh, Molly Ball, great to see you. All right. Stay safe, stay strong, and uh, lots of luck with the book. We'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Molly Ball. Don't forget to buy a copy of her book, Pelosi. A link to buy the book will be in the episode notes to this podcast, of course. And we also ask you a favor, if you're new to the podcast, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. If you haven't already done so, just wherever you're listening to this podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And then, as another great favor, tell all your friends about it. And we also ask you to and remind you to follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Donald Trump's known, not the only one out there on Twitter. We try to keep up with him a few times a day. Uh, and that way you also know about every upcoming podcast of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.